welcome to the Science and Paranormal with Dr. Yana and Dr. Elliot, where science meets the unexpected, where we delve deep into the mysteries that straddle the line between scientific inquiry and paranormal. Get ready for a mind-altering journey as we embark on this phenomenal discovery together on United Public Radio Network 107.7 FM. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Science and the Paranormal mm -hmm. with Dr. Elliot, Dr. Yana, very special uh, guest here tonight. But first, I'll let uh, Dr. Yana do our typical intro. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, Dr. Elliot. I don't know what our typical intro is. We are always going so differently. <laughs> Welcome to the United Public Radio Network, uh, to the Science and Paranormal, where we connect science and everything that is unexplained. And tonight, we have a fantastic guest with us, Chris Stiles. All we I heard do. about him, yes. he is so enigmatic, such an enigmatic persona, and we will discover a lot about him and what he does today. Yeah, Chris Chris has always uh, had a great mm -hmm. reputation um, at any event I've been at. A lot of people, uh, you know, love listening to, to Chris's stories. He's an active uh, UFO researcher for those listeners out there that uh, haven't heard of Chris yet. Um who investigates uh, select classic and even current UFO incidents all throughout Atlantic Canada. Um, he holds a blended view of the UFO phenomena that allows room for both the extraterrestrial hypotheses and a significant psychological component. He's certainly best known for his work on the 1967 Shag Harbor UFO incident here in Nova Scotia, uh, Canada's Roswell that they call it because it was for all intents and purposes, an unidentified flying object that crashed off the uh, coast of Shag Harbor and um, remains unidentified uh, to this day. Um, he's also presented at uh, several MUFON symposium uh, all across Canada and the United States. And last year, he uh, actually um, presented at the 2023 Halifax Paranormal Symposium. So very excited uh, to welcome Chris to our show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here again, Elliot, with you, you know. Yes, um, and the uh, the last thing, the book, uh, which uh, was kind of, uh, kind of dispelled a bit of a, a myth about the Shag Harbor story. So why don't you uh, kind of tell hmm. us about the Shag Harbor UFO crash for any listeners out there that haven't heard about it, and then lead us sure. into what we always thought was the second part of Shag Harbor, uh, Shelburne, hmm. but it turns out two different files. X-Files. X-Files, yes. that's right. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, some of the documentation are, as you know, Elliot, official RCMP X-Files, you know, with that designation. But um, let's go back to 1967. Let's roll it back. A very different time. Canada's centennial year. Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia is a tiny fishing village on the southwestern coast and, uh, you know, faces out into the Gulf of Maine. And if you were outside on the night of October the 4th, 1967, and looked up, uh, first of all, the moon had set. It was a very clear sky. You could see the faintest stars without binoculars and perfect viewing conditions, which is 
pretty rare in Nova Scotia, actually. But if you looked up, but what you would have seen is a set of flashing lights that first flew in an easterly direction. And they flash an unusual pattern that's not seen in commercial air traffic, where the four lights would go in sequence, one, two, three, four, and then they'd all flash again. The object ended up over what's known as the sound locally, which is Shag Harbor itself. Hovered there for about five minutes, tilted to a 45-degree angle, descended rapidly to the water surface, and struck. Some claim to have seen a flash or heard the sound of an explosion, but many didn't. Most people lost sight of the, of the descending craft behind the tree line. It was 1120 at night, like I say, a moonless night, and people who were out driving around would have seen this. Right away, seven people called the nearby RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage and reported simply that they'd seen lights or that perhaps a, an aircraft had crashed. No one reported a UFO. It would be the authorities that first applied that label to it in the days afterwards. Um, a crowd developed uh, with dozens of people beside the moss plant, a fish processing plant uh, by the shore. And interestingly, of those seven people that called that were amongst the crowd, one of them uh, actually who had seen the UFO in both the air and on the surface of the water was one of the RCMP officers, Constable Ron Pond. The other two uh, were in the nearby detachment and they made their way there. When they got on scene, everybody could still see the UFO on the water, but it no longer appeared as a set of four flashing lights, but just simply as a pale dome of yellow light. And one of the officers looked at the object with his binoculars and as it was moving toward open sea, it passed in front of a, a well-known fixed buoy called the budget buoy which stands eight feet out of the water and it completely blocked the view of the budget buoy. So give some sense of the vertical relief. All estimates by witnesses were very consistent. And they described an object that was at least 60 feet in diameter. And the word diameter is used. And we now know the person, one of the few that saw more than the lights, which was the light keeper's wife, was a man lighthouse in those days on Bon Portage Island. And she was in her living room knitting and looked out the window and the object was actually coming toward her and struck the water. And as it entered and the lights on it reflected back upon it, she could see that it was a plastic saucer. Anyway, the result was that the uh, RCMP responded. They commandeered two local boats. The object either disappeared or submerged before they could reach it. It did leave a strange trail of yellow foam half a mile on the surface. Uh, they searched until 3 a.m. Remember, it happened near 11.20 p.m. that night. The search resumed at first light. Uh, their reports were passed on to Canadian Forces headquarters in Ottawa, and eventually an underwater search was ordered. Um, after five days of searching in the weekend, a press release was put out, and uh, they said, look, Something went in the water. We knew there was no missing or downed aircraft. Uh, we don't know what it was. It was just one of those things. But there was no cover story as such, and it achieved uh, headline status in the Halifax 
Chronicle Herald, which back in the day, and some would say even now, is Canada's most conservative broadsheet, not the kind of paper that has UFO stories. That's what would have happened that night and in the days immediately afterwards. Eventually, it slipped from the public's mind. People left, and as I often like to say, made a sandwich, wondered how they were going to pay the power bill, forgot about UFO, <laughs> went home. <laughs> That's what usually happens. Well, yeah. yes, especially here. You know, when people say, I, I often think this would have played out very differently had it played out in uh, New Mexico or, you know, over New York City or Metropolis or Montreal, although cases do happen there, as we know, too. But um, that's what happened. It slipped into the dustbin of history till I began to research it 26 years later. And I'll, I'll pause there. So. <laughs> um, no, that's actually a fantastic uh, a recap of um, yeah. Big Harbor. So, and then the nice thing about this UFO incident is that we have government documents which show it, whereas uh, Roswell was a little bit different. Uh, and, and well, the, both, there are both documents there, but they're controversial. In Roswell, there are issues. Yeah, and there's been some that have been proven to be fake, uh, but they had kind of the same thing as well. They had some newspaper clippings that have been pulled from the archive, same as Shag Harbor. It's kind of interesting that both cases kind of disappeared from the limelight for quite a while until um, I know Stanton Friedman worked with a few people uh, that kind of um, dug up the Roswell case, almost like you worked with Don Ledger to drag up the mm-hmm. uh, Shag Harbor case. So really interesting that they kind of just disappeared and and. But yeah, when I first contacted Stanton Friedman, he'd never heard of it. Yeah, yeah, like that's that's why I think that you know somebody like Stanton Friedman hadn't even heard of this case. Um, so then, what happened after uh, the initial night there? So obviously they could only search so much because it was nighttime. Um, you know, being a former RCMP officer myself, I know normally you'll have to wait until the daytime. Uh, you know, um, sure. you, there's only so much you can do yeah. doing the night. So then, day daytime rolls around. What happens after that? Well, they went. They resumed the search at first light, and um, this didn't all come out immediately when I started researching. But over time, what my reinvestigation of this what would have been a cold case then revealed is the fact that even when the cancellation. Uh, of the underwater search for the object responsible for this, right? With Navy divers, seven Navy divers were sent down. And like I say, searched for five days in total. The thing is, um, with that cancellation of the search, the air desk, which was Canada's equivalent of Blue Book in Ottawa at the RCAF and other concerns, other departments within the military were hardly done with this case. And what I discovered is that even a month later, they were placing ads in every newspaper in Nova Scotia saying military wants UFOs reported and who to contact and any information on this case. So they were certainly quite interested. Also, documents in the next year in 1968 indicate strongly, and there are many of them, that cases like Shag Harbor and Falk and Lake Manitoba um, were convinced them that there was something real happening here on the ground and that they didn't have a grip on it and they wanted to know. And they suggested that 
these kind of investigations should probably be taken away from the military and handed over to Canada's National Research Council. And on January the 8th, 1968, that happened. And this and Shag Harbor and Falcon Lake are referred to as the cases that suggest this is necessary. So, you know, Ottawa certainly took it seriously. And that's one of the great things. The documents don't just talk about how, um, you know, the details or what witnesses saw, but they reveal policy and the influence and the <coughs> impetus and importance that Ottawa Canadian Forces Headquarters and the Minister of Defence put on this case. And by the way, the Minister of Defence, when people hear that year, they think it's Paul Hellyer, but it wasn't. It was the only time in Canadian history we had two defence ministers at once. We had an associate defence minister. It was Leo Cadu. And it was him that actually handled the Shag Harbor case. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And um, so a couple of days go by. They don't find anything. Uh, they don't find any wreckage, any luggage, nothing to kind of indicate. Well, you know, that. Well, well okay. The, there's the other thing my investigation uh, underco uh, uncovered. Not immediately. This was some years into it. I started looking into this in April of 1992. But sometime later, what I discovered was that the lightkeeper on the island, Vaughn Portage, the late Urban Banks, who was woken up by his wife, who I'd earlier described, looking out the window, seeing the saucer come toward her and hit the water. Um, he claimed that the next morning when he went out after first light, like that night they called him up, the Coast Guard, and asked him to do a patrol. He found nothing at the time. But the next morning he claimed to find an unusual cylinder, an artifact on the island that they describe as having wires, perhaps fiber optics, and a very strange odor and an odd looking and odd writing on it. And it was recovered. And he followed the orders from the Coast Guard, and what they did was turn the object over to the U.S. Navy, which wasn't what was supposed to happen. Because I know you're aware of also what's in things like the Space Object Contingency Plan, of which the RCMP and Canadian Armed Forces adhere to. And since we were in Canadian territory there, um, this was supposed to be turned over to the Canadian Armed Forces. But the Coast Guard decided to package this thing up and hand it over to U.S. Navy personnel. And in fact, years later, we actually found a geodesic marker that the U.S. Navy seems to have left on the island, you know, uh, at the point where he'd found the artifact when we went looking. So very interesting, interesting very suspicious. Uh, so officially, no, the, they found nothing. But the one guy who did find something did not turn it over to RCMP or Canadian Armed Forces. That's the late Irvin Banks. Uh, there is a documentary we did called UFO Files, uh, Canada's Roswell, that was done for the U.S. History Network. And in that, Irving is on camera making that claim and describes, and they show a mock-up of what he recovered. Um, I can tell you that once we located the wife, it was years later, his ex-wife, um, she confirmed the story and his adult children have that this was the wife wouldn't let him bring it into the house uh she was quite upset because the night she woke him up and said something's crashed an airplane or something is just crashing the harbor you got to get out there he didn't believe her and thought she was seeing things and uh, 
you typical know, man. Are called, typical yeah, man. typical man. That's all. She had other words for it that were harsher than that, Elliot. <laughs> is, but I laughed. She said, oh, you know, he did find something. And when we finally arranged this interview, which was very difficult to do, she was living out of province and had just returned. Her second husband had just passed from cancer. You know, it was a, and, and this was during the time of COVID. It was all those years later. And when she described how she'd seen it, it answered a lot of questions. But then before I could ask the question about the artifact or the claim of artifact from Irvin Banks, she said, you know, we found something the next morning and that SOV brought it. He wanted to bring it in the house. He goes, I guess I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. And uh, she wouldn't even let him bring it in the house. She never even looked at it, but all her children had seen it and that. So, but he told that, made the claim. There's a mock-up of it in that documentary done for the U.S. History Channel. So. Interesting. You uh, you had mentioned um, he had talked about a smell coming from the object. When, yeah. When the first night the UFO crash happened and uh, the fishermen and RCMP were out in the water, yeah, uh, they saw almost like a yellow, what's described as like a, a yellow, dense yellow foam with sparkles in it. Yeah. Wasn't there a smell coming from that as well? Sulfury. They say it smelt of sulfur, and it was quite a trail of foam. It's, uh, they describe it as being, a, you know, a, a few both lengths across, some said 80 feet in width, and a half mile in length, implying that when this thing hit, it skidded across the surface of the water. And that, and that of course, just ties right in with uh, what, uh, you see, unfortunately, all the people that called in the seven witnesses that reported to RCMP, they were in cars. They lost sight of it as it went below the tree line. They, they were racing, figuring, oh, my God, it's going to hit the harbor. But they lost sight of it. But again, uh, Mrs. Irvin Banks, as she was at the time, now Towers uh, uh, is her last name now. Um, she saw the thing, you know. Uh, coming right at her, and like I say, the lights reflected back, and as the water washed over, she could see it. So, it also explained why there's one of my my most favorite document. As you know, there's many of them. We have the telexes that went between the bases, but the one I always like is I, I is the uh, the memo that went through defense headquarters 30 hours after the investigation began, kind of bringing everyone up to speed. And in the third paragraph of that document, it says a preliminary investigation has been conducted by the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax. And it has been determined that this, the, the cause of the sighting was not an aircraft flare float or, in fact, any known object. And it describes it as being 60 feet in diameter. All the witnesses I spoke to before I found Isabel Towers said, Simply, they saw the lights, and it was at least 60 feet across. And I kept saying, where did the diameter come from? Where did the confirmation? It was so gratifying years later to find her and describe how she seen that, and it was round. Although Constable Ron Pond saw it block out the star field and look round, he originally seen it on uh, Cape Sable Island on highway patrol. The other two officers that responded to the scene, Ron O'Brien, and Victor Wurbicki were back in the detachment, right? So um, pretty sound stuff. You know, you have three RCMP officers who never recanted and all the other people. It's great. Well, yeah, this is so no. interesting because it uh, looks like there was a cover-up. 
And so, Chris, you're saying that the matters were given to the Americans. Yeah, well, uh, the cover-up wasn't a Canadian cover-up. They were unaware. And in fact, I went to Ottawa and interviewed Squadron Leader William Bain. He was one of two majors that ran the air desk in Ottawa. Now, this was the part in 1967. It was the division that was charged with uh, looking into UFO cases and doing investigations. And to give it some perspective, in 1967, they had received 256 reports from, uh, you know, police and RCMP files. And they did nine on-site investigations that year you know, put some resources into it, men, divers, aircraft, whatever. Uh, and, and of course, one of these was Shag Harbor. And um, when I spoke with uh, Bain, he was, uh, he was very open and uh, quite candid about it. He himself was a believer because he's seen, this was amazing, UFOs off the coast of Nova Scotia flying S2 subtrackers out of Shearwater here, which is what, I'm about live about a mile from the base here now. And he said, well, if they weren't that, they were at least very amazing tricks of light and other things, you know, but he was very open-minded. And when I told him about some of the things that weren't making sense and some of the documents I'd found and the fact that they were searching after they had called off the official search, but still knocking on doors and, you know, this claim that the light keeper had handed it off to the Americans, he said, Oh, we were probably stick handled by them. It had happened before in cases. He'd seen it in Newfoundland and that, you know, so he didn't seem surprised. But yes, but the U.S., what they did is, see, we were signatories to something that was, uh, I, I got released. Oh, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was 07 or something, 2007. Um, there was a policy that existed between the U.S. and Canada, between the RCMP and our, our armed forces uh, in terms of recovering things like this. And there was a, a, a cooperation. And this was to involve anything that came down from space or re-entered the atmosphere, whether it was a, a meteorite or a spacecraft or, you know, uh, something foreign or Soviet technology. And um, this was not how this was supposed to work. But part of this is the fact uh, not trying to cut anybody too much slack here, but the Coast Guard, they weren't actually signatories to this. And that life-keeping service of them looking after these lighthouses and that it had only happened recently, back in 67. In fact, the lifeboat system only began in 66 that, you know, responded to this from Clark's Arbor. So perhaps they didn't know what they were supposed to do but uh, the americans certainly didn't say oh by the way you know here's your coffee or or confirm this with ottawa and bain i remember he thought oh it's very likely he looked at it. he says i think your supposition is probably right well years later we've seen enough other evidence it's i think it's now an established fact that if there was if this artifact and we don't know it may not have been something that had to do with the ufo perhaps it was a a passive sonar buoy drop that hit the island or something else. Whatever it was, it went to UFO and uh, uh, went to the U.S. <laughs> and there was no accounting for their having received it or why the Coast Guard gave it to them. And, oh, yeah, so it yeah. just uh, disappeared. And that is so interesting. These is things that... happen. It's like the scene at the end of Indiana Jones, you know, where it goes into that big warehouse and 
<laughs> and that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, but the I interesting know. thing about it is just the, uh, I think that the Canadian authorities pretty much knew what they were doing. And uh, when they had the, the information to the Americans, so they're also, like yeah. you say, that there was an agreement between them. And yeah. I know that two hours away here in California, in actually 1957, uh, in Langdon, uh, next to Joshua Tree uh, in the mountain area, there was uh, a construction called Integraton. That is, uh, uh, the construction started, I believe, in 1957 by the um, uh, George Van Tassel. And he was a famous ufologist uh, after yes. that, if you yes. could remember that. So yeah. uh, he was the um, aircraft mechanic. And he was drawn to that area, interestingly enough, uh, he claimed that uh, he was contacted uh, by the people from Venus. Uh, we call them people because that's our frame of reference uh, uh, from Venus. And essentially they gave him the blueprints how to construct this integraton for cell rejuvenation. And uh, um, the construction, I believe, was... Uh, uh, took about 18 years. However, he did not uh, finish constructing it in about two, two, two weeks before uh, the structure was supposed to be open to the public. Uh, uh, he died mm -hmm. mysteriously, as they claim. However, what happened after that, that is what is so pertinent to our discussion, is that the authorities, the FBI, they came and to, their, to his house and they swept everything off, including all the blueprints, all the paperwork and any research that, that was pertaining to that structure. So essentially all of that disappeared from face of earth. So <laughs> if Canadians head into Americans, Ameri Americans perish that and we never find out anything about it. So um, what do you think about it? That was kind of happened almost at the same time, very similarly. Well, yeah, I mean, that happens quite a bit. And it usually, if you go deep enough and you're lucky enough to get enough of the data and the eyewitness testimony, um, it, it tends to be an element in virtually all, almost all these cases, right? And in fact, Shag Harbor since 2022 has led to a, an earlier case that I always saw it existed and uh, I alone kept looking for that and finding the evidence of it. I kept hearing stories from Canadian Navy personnel um, whenever they would talk or try to help me with Shag Harbor. And this was everything from divers who had been part of a mission there uh, to admirals of the fleet who would say to me, well, gee, Chris, you know about Shelburne, don't you? And I was like, Shelburne. And uh, many people have tried to link that when the UFO uh, wasn't recovered and escaped under the water while, su while submerged from the Shag Harbor area, that it went up near Shelburne and, you know, uh, some ships sat over it and divers went down and seen it and all this. I always had trouble with that, like, because as much as there was very solid unquestionable documentation about what was known to have happened in Shag Harbor, which agreed with the press. This ending of the story, while seeming quite plausible 
and articles were written even about it in magazines like the Atlantic by, you know, a former head of the Royal Astronomical Society and that. I had a great deal of trouble with it. And some of the people I interviewed, there were little clues that implied to me that it was an earlier separate case. And it took me 29 years to come up with the evidence for that. And uh, there's no doubt. That's a long now. time. Oh, yeah, I was mm. obsessed, you know. And I had a laugh. People, you know, would talk about me being obsessed about Shag Harbor. Well, I was involved. I was interested. I was never quite obsessed because I knew it would happen. It was just the work to be done. I was very lucky from the beginning. You know, the case came together. Um, I started looking into it in 92. And, you know, before a year or two went by, I was hearing, I was reading in things like McLean's Magazine where they're saying this has become Canada's most important UFO case. You know, it was very gratifying. And I thought, well, yes, it had to happen. I knew the case was there. I guess I'd met some of the witnesses. My own maternal grandfather had been one of the many non-reporting witnesses. I was 12 when it happened, and I had these memories, right? And I thought, it's just a matter of doing the work. It'll come together, and it did. And um, I also knew from my exposure to the development of the Roswell case at the time that, hey, there's no weather balloon here. There's no story of a weather balloon. There's no, you know. And I thought, well, in Canada, the things should be a little more accessible, a little more open than they are with the U.S. concerns for security. The other, uh, it, It's not just that. It's not just the border. But Canada in 1967 is a world of difference from New Mexico in 47. You know, right after the war, uh, you know, you still got war jitters. You know, the Cold War is just beginning, uh, you know. And in New Mexico, you know, you've got all the concerns. It's the only place where you have nuclear bombers in the world. You know, it's a very different thing. Here in Canada in 67, the expectation of the public, you just couldn't go in and shut communities down or threaten people. And, you know, you would have created, you would have drawn more attention, right? However, 1960, which is when I found out that this Shelburne story occurred, uh, is a very different time, even in Canada. And early on in the book I wrote about it called Sweep Clear 5, um, I, I go through some length to try to explain to the people, you know, you've got to look at this very different than Shag Harbor. Even though many people try to connect it, I've now proved it is totally separate. It happened seven years earlier in 1960. It's a time when people still trusted their government. Imagine that. You can't even, you know, <laughs> that was gone even by 67. <laughs> but in 1960, right, people trusted the government. The government said, you know, as Kennedy did a couple of years later, don't ask what, you know, this government can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And people did and people tried. And it was very different. You know, you, you, uh, so in 1960, we had the very case, what I found was that in Shelburne Harbor, the story that had bits and pieces of it gotten connected to Shag Harbor turned out to be quite the different, uh, as Newfoundlanders say, east of us, quite a different kettle of fish. Because what you had here was a NATO mission Get this, with 10 U.S. warships, they're all named in the book. I have the documentation. 
eight Canadian vessels, and they were down in a NATO mission doing a minesweeping exercise in Shelburne Harbor, Nova Scotia. And while the divers were down checking sonar returns and, and some dummy mines that weren't at behaving as they should, they go down. There's two USOs on the bottom with live aliens in the water. The men see it. They claim to have filmed it. They come up and uh, manage to convince the brass on the ship that this is indeed happening. And something that, according to... Uh, you can look up from Wikipedia to more scholarly sources that supposedly has never happened. I've now proved has, which is, you know, if you look at the DEFCON system, if you look up the definition and the history of that, you know, uh, Wikipedia would be something most people would access without getting into technical or scholarly things. It'll tell you that the highest we've ever been on the system is DEFCON 2 which would have happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis just two years later than the Shelburne incident. However, what I found when I got the ship's log of the command ship, which was HMCS Cape Scott, a Canadian vessel, which, by the way, my father served on the mission. Uh, he never breathed a word to me. What I found was that when this occurred, on October the 12th, 1960, just after noon at about 1242, they declared DEFCON 1 because of this incident. It's right in the ship's log. What is this? This is, you know, you're ready for nuclear war. You can retaliate oh. without without clearance. You know, and you're good to go. Yes. Incredible. If need be, whatever. It's a, it's a state of war. So now it was declared just for the region. You see... Usually when you hear like DEFCON 1, DEFCON 3, the, these various levels of defense readiness, they're usually decided by the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon and the President, right, at that level. However, commanders in the field with U.S. and Canadian forces and with NATO, um, you know, can declare that in their region to deal with whatever, you know, needs to be done. Like if they had a confrontation, like... You know, I don't know, accidentally rammed a Soviet sub and things were going to heat up. And, you know, they, they can raise the DEFCON level for that area. And they report it to the Pentagon or whatever. But if you look up, like I say, the history of the DEFCON system, it'll tell you we've never been to one. But when I got the ship's logs on the Shelburne time frame for this incident, once I found the correct date and what ships were involved, I go through the command ship, and like I say, when I get to that date, this is when all the ships converge in Shelburne Harbor, and they begin this operation of going through a, a, a swept course where mines have been cleared, and they want to see, you know, it was training for the men. And when they go down and try to figure out what's wrong, and by the way, uh, no, it wasn't a Soviet sub, because they were only, get this, in 42 feet of water at the time when they dropped anchor and sent the divers down find these two UFOs, find aliens in the water, declare DEFCON 1. And the ships don't move for a week. They just sit there. And uh, from there on, there's no detail of what goes on. But I've heard the stories. I've interviewed the divers. They claim they were face-to-face -face with aliens. They claim that they filmed the incident, and the film was driven to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and given to the Defense Research Board. 
This is so interesting. It is just like another country superpower that was politically interfering in the conflict, if essentially framing the Russians at the time. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, yeah. And a lot of people said to me, "Well, why wasn't this a Russian sub? Why wasn't this this?" Look, if you got a Russian sub sitting in 42 feet of water, you could have looked over the side of the boat and knocked on the conning tower of the sub. Right. You Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, but um, not this that Russians would ever come close like that. <laughs> well, well, okay. Here we go. You got to understand, though, that in 1960, there's only a 12 mile international limit, it's not 200 miles then, right? Eisenhower is still president. Kennedy hasn't been elected yet. This is October 1960, right? It's just before the election. Um, the Cold War is really heating up. This is just before the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's lots of Soviet subs off our coast at that time. The entire mission and design of the Canadian Navy at the time, and we had a 60-ship Navy then, unlike today, was anti-submarine warfare. Okay, that was the purpose. It, that role had been kind of given to us through World War II, right? And it went afterwards. The difference was that once that war ended, the sphere of influence for Canada and the treaties we signed, including, you know, with NATO and, and with the U.S. In fact, there's a, there was a special naval agreement between Canada and the U.S. called the Canis Arrangement. It was signed in 59 by Eisenhower and John Diefenbaker. Uh, just for this reason. And, uh, you know, here it was one year later, and uh, this happened. And then two years later in the Cuban Missile Crisis, our prime minister disagreed with John Kennedy when he wanted our help for the crisis, although we did it in secret. Um, we, In fact, we took U.S. orders directly during that. That's that's a historic fact that's well known now. But so, what was the Canis you know, Agreement? The Canis Agreement was the fact that we had a special arrangement between the navies and what it was is if, if they asked for our help, we were to give it without question and vice versa. So for example, if there were more subs off our coast suddenly than we could handle, we could ask the US to, you know, can you send up a battle group or a carrier group or something and they would respond. Uh, there were many, many NATO training missions, much more so than today between uh, Canada and the U.S. at the time. It was, it, there'd be several several times a year you'd have uh, exercises in the Caribbean or off the United Kingdom, you know, with Canadian and U.S. forces. Um, and at the time, that's what this was. In fact, the name of the mission was, was it's not just the title, and that's where I got it, was Sweep Clear Five. We know the name of the mission. It was a mind-sweeping training mission. That's how it began but it became something else. And uh, hence the title of the, booth, uh, of the book and the uh, subtitle is Sweep Clarify NATO's UFO Encounter. But what's really clear is when you look at all the evidence that the, the eyewitness testimony of these, of the men uh, and, and the, you know, the dates and the names of the ships. And then when you start looking at the, uh, strange behaviors and decisions of the brass. And then when you look at the Shag Harbor incident, you know, I mean, the thing is, we know from the Shag Harbor incident, like what men were handling this with the Defense Research Board, 
And when I talked to these fellows, they knew and they named who they handed the film to. Like, you know, this this was very detailed, and a lot of this is in the book. I mean, uh, you know, when I first asked them, well, um, you know, what happened? You would always get a specific answer, and he would say, well, you know, my shipmate here, and he would name them. They were in the room, you know, filmed the event. You know, we handed it. And when we came up, they put us on an army deuce and a half called Old Sid. We drove it to Dartmouth, handed it. You know, he would name the scientist he handed to. And I had already, you know, had a chapter about him and another book about the Shag Harbor. And said, so, you know, they knew the name of who it was. Like, the details were quite hard. But I never expected at the time, strangely, the men said, look, you know, the, the things really hit the fan when this... Uh, happened you know when they talk about going to defcon one except but when the the when i first heard the story in 92 and had it sort of mixed into the shag harbor incident nobody said we went to defcon one they're just saying oh man all hell broke loose you know what i mean they handed us firearms everybody was up you know alarms sounded the ships there was panic uh nobody said and and the men who were down there, the ship hands and the divers, they probably didn't know this. This would have been at the level just in the bridge, you know, with the captain and, again, uh, with the our U.S. Uh, counterparts that were on the scene and eventually probably to the Pentagon. But the thing is, you know, um, when I first heard this and, you know, found the name of the mission and, and discovered historically when it happened the names of the ships i had to wait for the ship's logs that come from ottawa the canadian ones at least and when i had that it went through i i didn't expect to see ufo or anything but i'm going through the details of the mission and they're saying it happened the first day we got to shelburne like we got set up took half a day to get all the ships lined up we started going through this swept course that was supposed to be okay to see if we could make it without setting off a dummy mine you know and he said, uh, we're only an hour into the mission. Now, this, the, the divers who told me this story in 1992, get this, in, uh, no, pardon me, 1993, I was a year into Shag Harbor uh, investigating the case when I ran into the, you know, someone who had actually been on the mission. And they're saying, oh, no, Shag Harbor, that was a real UFO, but you must know about Shelburne. They go, uh, there's no doubt. And all the guys would nod and say, there's no doubt about Shelburne. So what do you mean there's no doubt? They go, there were aliens in the water. We were in there with them. And we went up the ship and all hell broke loose and all this. No one said they were at DEFCON 1. So when I finally got the ship's log for HMCS Cape Scott, I, I see, you know, the ships coming down from Halifax, all the course corrections and changes where they meet up with the U.S. ships. They get all lined up and it says entered swept course and it gives the time. So I start going through all the details and since... The command ship is running, um, what is it, 18 ships. There's all kinds of orders and bearings, and you're going through all this minutia of naval orders. And when I get down the list, I'm looking for excitement, for something hitting the fan, whatever you want to call it. And when I get down, <laughs> at 60 minutes, there's nothing, and I'm going through and drinking a cup of coffee. Of course, when they tell me the story, remember, it's already... Um, well, years old, 63 years old. And at the time, it was already like 30 years old or so. 
you give them this, the 60 minutes, I see nothing remarkable. When I get to the 90 minute mark, that's when I see this, you know, they drop anchor, you know, men to the ship, action stations, right? You know, and the order comes down from Halifax, assume DEFCON 1. So that thing that supposedly has never that happened. That is incredible. Assume DEFCON 1 is right in the ship's log. I showed it's that in the... In the it, yeah, I was just going to say, it's interesting the Navy personnel yeah. told you that they, they, they find the Shelburne case more fascinating because, uh, you know, they well, claim yeah. that some of the personnel saw the extraterrestrials, whereas the Shag Harbor one, nobody that you've come across yet anyways no. has said that they've seen a disc no. or aliens or anything like that no. with Shag Harbor. Yeah, very, no. very, very interesting. No, the closest we come to that actually is at 33,000 feet. The night before that airliner that had a near collision, uh, Pan Am Flight 160 over the Gulf of Maine, where the flight engineer, Michael Littlepage, told me that they were only about half a mile away from this thing in front of them, paced them, and it dropped in front of the nose of the jetliner. And when he cupped his eyes to the windscreen and they shut off the cabin lights, he realized that those lights that they thought were external were not external there were windows and he was looking into the craft but he never said he saw a being or any kind of entity wow that's really that's yeah. really cool yeah that's the coolest that's the closest but again you're right that stopped short whereas in shelburne but the thing is the public never knew about shelburne it all happened underwater in shelburne harbor and when i say shelburne harbor we're at the mouth of the harbor it's 10 miles out from the town that harbor is very is a backup harbor for Halifax in an emergency. Like it's, uh, you know, most people, if you didn't know and were familiar with the area and you sailed in there, you'd probably think you were in a river or something. You know, the town is way in from whatever. So nobody yeah, and any that, of that. Yeah. Sometimes when they do exercises too, they obviously like alert like local authorities and things like that. So word would have been getting around that there was a NATO exercise, but nobody would have been paying it any sort of attention yeah. to it. Um, I think I just thing, read recently that NATO is getting ready to do like another exercise somewhere. So, I mean, it's very, you know, yeah. it would just be very nonchalant for the locals. Whereas yeah. Shag Harbor, you know, people going towards the water, they figured yeah. it was an aircraft or something was going to yeah. crash. And then and w witnesses actually heard, you know, the bang and, and uh, you know, they saw yeah. lights underneath the water. The other thing, though, about, about the Shelburne cases, you got to remember that two miles away, you get Canada's most secret base at the time, CFS Shelburne, Canadian Forces Station Shelburne. Here's the catcher. Here, here's the real th Think about this, Elliot. At 1960, it's a U.S. base only on Canadian soil. No Canadian personnel working there. That's interesting. Yeah. See, after 62, it was a 50-50 arrangement like NORAD has, you know, with... with you know, Cheyenne Mountain or whatever. But yeah. at that time, in 1960, it's the only Canadians working there would have been like in the cafeteria or a cleaner or something. All the people in the base or any position of authority or where sensitive stuff was done. But it was Canada's most secret base. It operated under a cover story officially. The, the U.S. has admitted this since. It, it's even on the U.S. Navy website that has to do with the... Uh, history of the SOSA system, right? Those big scandals, those espionage 
scandals that occurred in the states like the walker scandal you know um that during the reagan years was described as the most damaging espionage failure you know in u.s history right all had to do with the shelburne base and the leaking of the sosis data to the russians right Interesting. By, yeah yeah so it was it was very sensitive and even when the base was shared with canadian staff anyone who was ever posted to work there told me it, it was it was extreme you know security there right it was uh but in 1960 under u.s control only it, i mean you know they were all over this with this plane you know, two or three miles away of course right and we know how good their data was for example um they actually you know in the old mercury space program the Shelburne base was a backup if they lost visual uh, contact with, you know, a, a returning capsule, if it would have been too far offshore. And, you know, if they lost in radar or over the horizon, those capsules were equipped with a special series of explosive bolts on the outside, not to blow a hatch, but just to go off when it struck the water. And they were tuned to a special frequency and Shelburne would listen for that frequency. And they were able to tell exactly where that would be acoustically from Shelburne, Nova Scotia, if that landed, say, 200 miles off the coast instead of where it was supposed to, and they lost track of it. And when they did that, uh, they would send their plotting of where they figured it was, and it always agreed with the radar or visual confirmation. So, you know, they had that kind of acoustic acuity and resolution at the base, right? So that is absolutely wild so they must have heard and known everything that was happening in this incident you know yeah that, they would have sure that is absolutely incredible and i am so glad that you chris styles our special guest today that we get to ask all these questions and i'm so glad that you have performed all of this investigation and documented it in your books hmm. we are coming live to you, ladies and gentlemen, from United Public Radio Network, 107.7 FM. And you're listening to Science and Paranormal with Dr. Elliot and Dr. Yana. We have a special guest today, Chris Stiles, whom we are interrogating on UFO mm. <laughs> files, X-Files, and we are getting actually more that we were asking for. I am so intrigued by this situation in Canada, in fact. And Chris, I have a question for you. Why, in your opinion, that base was strictly American without the uh, without even um, having any Canadians on the base? Um, well, I think it was uh, at the time it was just um, it took them a long time. The base first became operational in 1955. And the design and the um, the development of the SOSA system, you know, the sonar system, they, they microphoned like the whole Atlantic Ocean, right? They were listening for Soviet subs. It was a listening post, in, to put mm -hmm. it in layman's term. But the Shelburne base was special. There were actually 
actually 64 stations around the world, like around North and South America and, and on the other side, Europe. But they all coordinated and connected to Shelburne. It was the coordination center. So it had a very important role, right? Now, we do know because of things like damage from the, uh, the espionage leaks, let's say, of the Walker scandal, for example, that the Soviets became aware of the function of the base. And like say, it operated under a cover story back in the day, if you said, what did they do there? They claimed it was a hydrographic research station, you know, but it was uh, tracking Soviet subs is what it was all about. Well, the Soviets, when they found that out, you know, they're very practical and I, you have to kind of admire their, their immediate counter move to this. Every time they would send a, a sub out and it would go back after, say, a 90-day tour. And you got to remember something. In 1960, they didn't have nuclear subs. The Americans only remember the first nuclear sub in the U.S. was 1955, the Nautilus, right? And in 1960, most of these were diesel-electric subs. And when they would go back to the Soviet Union before they would sail again, they would drill a hole or, or put a little bend in one of the uh, fins on the uh, propeller so it would have a different acoustic signature. And if you look back and they were getting these huge numbers and they started to think, oh, my God, the Soviets got five or 600 submarines. But every time <laughs> they go out, they would change the sound of them. Right? Ingenious. Yeah, a little thing. Well, you know, the Russians have a different approach to that. You know, I often, you know, when people think that's kind of cute and i say look nasa you know they spent what a million dollars to develop a pen that would write in zero g or upside down you know and not fail the russians would just give the men pencils <laughs> you know, that was how they solved things right you know <laughs> they don't talk much they just do it <laughs> pencils well you know you think about the mars probes that land you know and all the software development so they could tell when they had true color or not right you go back and look at that first successful Venera probe that sent back pictures from Venus. And if you look, there's a thing that kind of looks like a bent coat hanger coming into the field of view. And it's got a little strip on it. It's got a spectrum of colors on it. Well, what it was is like that was in the frame of the camera. And they had a copy of it on the desk. And the guy would just turn the knobs on the television until it matched the uh, strip on his desk, right? You know, I mean. Interesting. What? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is how they, uh, you know, it's a very straightforward, very practical. I mean, you think about World War II, the Soviet approach to that they found in the field during things like the Battle of Stalingrad that, you know, uh, when they would lose soldiers, they found that if they dragged them and buried them for so long in the snow uh, to prevent decay of the corpse, that uh, the blood would eventually still be good but lose its clotting factor and then you could give it to anybody without typing it you know very practical approach to real world serious problems of you know you have to you have to and then no, yeah. no one was ever able to conquer russia if you look at the historical no. facts that people still no. attempt to conquer and go in but nothing ever happens they withdraw with the well, many losses well, you know, like you got to beat the winter. You got to beat the size. It's unbeatable. Of the, <laughs> the size of the nation, right? It's like the War of 1812. Often here, 
you know, the U.S. Right. would send troops up to attack a community here in Canada, but they would freeze to death looking for it and not find it. <laughs> oh, you know, get lost. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the same concept. You know, the country in the winter would beat you. You know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. you know, at that time, I mean, even now, by world standards, our population is pretty sparse, you know. Uh, but yeah. certainly well, back in the early 1800s, like, can you imagine trudging through the woods in Ontario looking for York, as it was known well, then? I think you know? Canada just hit uh, 40 million, I think. So the state of California has more people than, than sure. our entire country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you look at cities, if you include the suburbs like Tokyo or Mexico City, it's almost that in one city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty wild. Now, you've got another interesting UFO story that I've heard you tell uh, a couple times, but uh, Dr. Yana probably hasn't heard this one. Um, it has a really cool kind of psychological component to it, but it's the lower Sackville UFO sighting. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites, yeah. In yeah, fact, I've heard other people like, uh, you know, Paul Kimball once said that's his favorite UFO case now, too. It's kind of gone out there. Um, got got a question before you tell that story. Uh, yeah. Though, it's, uh, Bo Chason uh, says that, uh, Chris, have you um, ever heard any rumors or anything uh, that Canada has a military base similar to Area 51? Or what would be kind of Canada's Area 51, if you've heard? The closest to that would be the Suffield Experimental Air Station. The Suffield Experimental Experimental Air, Air Station. Station. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that's out in um, Alberta. That makes sense. I'll have to ask my brother-in-law yeah. about that. He was a air it's a, it's a huge piece of land. You may remember that the Americans, I believe they were using that member to test the first cruise missiles. They were, oh, you know, yes. with no warhead. Yeah. Remember that? And there was some controversy about our letting them use it, you know, to, you know, test yeah. the effectiveness of them following. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's been a number of reports there, including landings. In fact, when I talked about those nine cases in 67, the two best known ones would be Shag Harbor and Falcon Lake. But one of the other ones was a landing case that happened at the Suffield Experimental Air Station that thought it would be a UFO. Yeah, it's one of these things that isn't very well known, but that would be Canada's equivalent. It's not a place where they're developing high-tech aircraft, but it's a place where it's often been tested, including like I say, cruise missiles for the U.S., right? You know, close as we get here, it's, you know. That's so, very cool. I see that they've done uh, some testing there, too, with um, TNT to kind of assess the effects of oh, yeah, as well. Yeah. 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 You, you know, believe it or not, uh, one of the things I found that's interesting, too, you know, and, and I'm not going to forget about Lower Sackville, but... You know, the Halifax explosion was examined by the Manhattan Project to yes. try to figure out you know, and what they looked at data from that because it was thought that when that explosion occurred in the Narrows that the yield was higher than it should have been and the damage it did. And they thought that if they looked at the depth from where the explosion occurred on the surface to the bottom of the Narrows in our harbor, that it would give them a good idea of how high an air burst should be when they drop those first nukes in Japan to end the war. And so that was examined and, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
Very cool. Yeah, a lot so of connections. Lower Sackville. Tell uh, tell us about Lower this. Lower Sackville. This yeah. case is very very. So what? So what's Elliot going on about forcing me to do here? It's it's a very interesting story, and I think it has a lesson for all UFO researchers. It's part of why there were so many reasons I like this case. Anyway, it it starts with me in Stanton Friedman's basement in Fredericton. And he loans me a box of reports. He said, here, there might be something in there in Shag Harbor. This is in the early days of the investigation. And I take this box home. He said, next time you see me, you run into me somewhere, give it back. So I'll go through all this. And I found a number of things. But one of the things I found was this neat little one-page RCMP report about a UFO sighting in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. Lower Sackville is kind of a bedroom community to Halifax, Dartmouth, the metropolitan area. Uh, now it's more or less part of, you know, the city in, in, in a larger sense than that. But that's how it would have been thought of then, I guess. Anyway, it goes back to, uh, we're talking the 70s, I believe it's 1976. And again, October, good time here, probably because the skies are clearer in Nova Scotia then. But it's very interesting. The case begins with a Mrs. Percy Webster. One of the great things about this report was before the Privacy Act got beefed up and everybody's name and phone number was still in the actual report when I had them. And um, this report, when I read it, was kind of fascinating because what it described was this woman near midnight called the nearby RCMP detachment in Bedford, Nova Scotia, which would have been the closest to her, and says... Uh, I was hoping you could send someone to my house because there's a UFO over my house <laughs> and I'm getting concerned. And they dispatch an officer, a constable Ferrand, to the her residence. They knock on the door and uh, he says, yep. In fact, she sa he says, there is, the, I believe, three UFOs over your house. And uh, she comes out on the front lawn, and as does her son. And uh, they're looking, and the uh, officer gets binoculars from the trunk of, trunk of his car, and they're looking at it. He does what he can on site. He, uh, he quizzes her first, and she says, no, we saw them earlier in the evening, and they were getting a little lower and closer, so I was getting concerned. None of them hear any noise or anything. He gets on the radio and uh, checks with Halifax uh, International Airport, as it was known at the time, and Shearwater, a nearby military base, and both of them are painting nothing on their radar. He stays on the scene for two hours, and uh, she makes some coffee, brings it out to the front lawn, and at the end, he says, well, look, I've got other duties i got to do. I can't stay. I've got to go. He says, if you feel threatened, or something changes, like, by all means, call, we'll come back. And he leaves, and he writes it up in this one nice, neat little report describing it. He describes the UFOs as three-sectioned objects, kind of an oblong, almost like a tic-tac thing, but not smooth. There's three distinct sections. And the middle part is like a T-strain or a mesh, and you can see into it, and there's a green light moving around. There's some red lights on the bottom and uh, kind of an unusual sighting. Doesn't hit the typical slots. Anyway, he wrote this up and there it is. 
Well, when I found this report, I stuck it on the fridge and I thought, well, someday when I'm out there without any pre-warning, I'll uh, grab this when I got to go to Sackville someday and I'm just going to go to this woman's house because remember I said the address was there, phone number, names. That's incredible. So when that happened, I went and I knocked on her door and explained who I was. And she says, oh, come on in. I'd love to talk to you. Um, and basically what she told me, she, she recounted what was in the report. You know, she didn't embellish it or add to it. I asked her if she'd seen anything since. Oh, we thought we did, but no, I don't think so. She says, oh, we were sure of what we seen that night. You know, we were... And she described, we were there for two hours. I made him a coffee and, you know, all this. And I asked her, I said, well, at the end of the report, it mentions, uh, you know, your neighbors uh, that were also witnesses. Uh, do they still live in the area? Would they still be your neighbor? Oh, she said, Chris, that wouldn't do you much good. She says, they wouldn't say anything to you. And I said, well, uh, well, I'll probably try in, in, you know, I tend to be pretty complete like that. And I just, she says, well, you got to understand, she says, they belong to some kind of uh, extreme Christian sect or cult or something. She said, I don't think they're likely to say anything. But she said, besides, I think they're away right now on vacation. She goes, we haven't seen them in a few weeks. So I said, okay, well, I'll go try. And she's, well, it's that place right there, right next door. So I went over and knocked on the door and there was no answer. So I left and went home and stuck this UFO report on my fridge. And every few days I called the number and there was no answer. After about three weeks or so, near the end of that summer, I got an answer. And a man answered the phone. And I said, hello. I said, is this Mr. Uh, Robert Bedford? And he said, yes. I said, uh, I told him who I was and why I was looking for him. He said, whoa, buddy, I'm going to stop you right there. He said, we seen a what? I said, a UFO. I said, this is in an RCMP report. I've never seen any such thing, he says. So this wasn't looking too good. And he said, when was this again? And I give him the date. And he says, I don't even think we lived here then. And I can hear him oh. hollering for his wife, saying, <laughs> dear, when did we move down from Ontario to the to Nova Scotia? And uh, I hear her coming up the hall he was on a landline on an old phone in the hallway right and i can hear her approaching him saying who is it what's up oh some guy he goes the webster's next door saw a ufo and i can hear her saying dear that's the night that was the night remember and uh, he covers the phone and i can't hear anything for you know 30 seconds or so and he comes back on he goes yes i know what you're talking about now I said, so you did see a UFO? No. He says, I did not. He said, um, you got to understand, he says, uh, we've just tried to forget this. But he says, um, you got to understand, we don't much get along with the neighbors. And, of course, I had had similar warning from Mrs. Webster. And I said, yeah, I, that's okay. I understand. But he said, I shouldn't have said that about it. And then the, the gentleman went on to say, I, I'm a Christian. He said, I'm very serious about my faith. Which, which, of course, you have to respect. And he said, uh, but uh, I shouldn't have said the things I did, but uh, we just let me just leave it at that. We don't get along with the neighbors. But he says, I never saw a UFO. I said, so how did your name end up in this RCMP report listing you as a witness? And he says, 
Well, I've tried to forget it, like I told you, he said, but I'm not very proud of this, but me and my wife are hiding under the bed. What? <laughs> so I said, hiding? Hiding from what? Well, he says, I don't know what, but he says it was low over the house. He said, and the sound, the the sound was loud. It was absolutely deafening, and the host was shaking. Now, the RCMP officer and Mrs. Webster and her son on the front lawn hear nothing. They're right next door, like, you know, uh, 20 feet away, and, you know, they're terrified and hiding under the bed. The host is shaking, and there's a roaring sound. Then Mr. Bedford, get this, goes on to tell me that he's a naval architect in the Canadian Navy. In fact, ironically, designed some of the buildings at the Shelburne base. And tells that is, me... That is ironic. Yes. Yeah, because at that time I didn't have the answers about the case and never asked him about that. Although he talked about the extreme security there and what that was like. And he says... Uh, we we're under the bed and you know he said we just wanted to end he says listen i fly in sea king helicopters and labradors all the time he says i didn't know what this was but i knew it was nothing normal and it was low over the house and i didn't want to know and we we're just there hoping it would end i said well that still doesn't explain to me how your name ended up in this report like how did this happen and he says, well, the thing is, he said, that's the funniest part. He said, it's just like you flipped the switch and the sound and the shaking stopped. And when it stopped, he said, um, I heard a knock at the door. And I went downstairs, he goes, and that was when the RCMP officer was there, a young fellow, he said. And he asked if I wanted to step out in the front lawn and see what was over the house. He said, I didn't want to go see. And he said, besides, I could see the neighbors out there looking toward us. So I declined and I never stepped out. He said, so I didn't see anything, but I certainly heard something. But that hearing and his details are completely at odds with the neighbors and the RCMP officer. Yeah, because the neighbors and the RCMP officer never reported any loud sounds. No, no in fact, they make a point of saying it was silent, right? Yeah, and two different, two very different perspectives by so my side. You have to ask yourself, what was that? What can possibly account for that? And what I think it is, I think it's one of those cases that have often been labeled by some, like by researchers like Jacques Vallée, what I call reality transformations, what he calls that. I would call it more of a reality distorter myself. But the thing is, is that, I think it shows that this could happen because I think something in the phenomena is able to influence witnesses' sensorium directly. It's the same reason why people like, I think, like Whitley Strieber had pointed out that sometimes that perhaps during an abduction or one that doesn't quite happen, their only memory they have is of seeing a bunch of deer where they shouldn't or something else, but not seeing aliens. The point is, you know, obviously these people were each telling the truth. They yeah. didn't trust or like each other. 
nobody was expecting me to come to them with this. You know, I, I, it's, it's so pure in that sense. But I think it tells us something about the phenomena. And it, it's, a, it's a warning, too, when you think about it. Because it calls into question all witness testimony then, doesn't it? Because you could be influenced directly by what is responsible for this. Or you may not. Or partially. And I think it's an incredible insight. It's, it, it, it's a cautionary tale. And it tells us just how unprepared we are to deal with this. And it's a whole new challenge. But, uh, wow, it's uh, very exciting. Even from a law enforcement perspective, like, you know, when you interview witnesses, you can expect a, a few details to be slightly different because that's how somebody perceived what happened. You know, perhaps they got the color of the, the vehicle wrong or whatnot. Sure. You've got two different witnesses giving. But like this was such an extreme change, you know, like went from like quiet lights in the sky, you know, that the RCMP officer and the Webster's uh you know, witness to um, the other family right next door, hearing very loud noises and shaking the house mm -hmm. and scaring them to, to hide underneath the bed. Um, like you said, what what kind of causes that? Dr. Yana, are you familiar with any psychological conditions, um, you know, on two otherwise, you know, healthy, normal adults and why they would perceive something so differently? Well, looks like uh, Chris has uh, mentioned that, that they were a part of uh, some Christian uh, organization, like perhaps like cult type organization and uh, uh, the psychological influence in those kind of uh, cultish organizations is very strong. And I actually witnessed um, some of that happening and I met some people from different kinds of um, Christian uh, uh, organizations uh, that are cult type that uh, uh, actually escaped those uh, organizations. And they were reporting that um, they had a severe case of mind control. And that is what they were trying to evade. So I'm not quite sure what was happening here and if they were so vehemently defending the Christian faith and not willing to talk about it, could that be the truth that they saw or perhaps something that they uh, made up and when the police officer showed up, they perhaps were able to persuade him that that actually happened. It's really difficult for me to say it because I don't have all of the information about it uh, um, psychologically. But you think you think, you think a, a factor could be their strong uh, religious beliefs possibly might have altered their perception. Well, it, it, Not necessarily strong religious beliefs. This is, uh, uh, mm -hmm. we all may have strong religious beliefs and not necessarily what would be uh, many of us we do and not necessarily, not necessarily what would be affecting the minds of other people or trying to control it. So in some of the sects uh, from the side of the elders, there is a huge component of mind control and hypnosis, and they are able to control uh, the people in their churches. So I don't know what exactly, uh, what organization or church that they attended, but that could be uh, 
the explanation. Just the fact, just the fact that the police officer was sitting there for two hours and mm -hmm. those uh, three saucers were hanging and rambling above the house. Like, why weren't they hiding under the bed at that time? They were sitting and drinking tea, you know, it's like, uh, uh, what is this, uh, at the football games? Uh, <laughs> what is it called? Um the celebration, and then you cook and everything. Uh, tailgating, oh, there, wow. the tailgating. Tailgate. Like Tailgate. something like that. Yeah. There was a tailgate party, right? And you would just think that for two hours they were drinking tea with biscuits, and then what happened? Uh, then finally he had to leave. Why didn't he investigate that? Uh, what did he exactly see in the sky? So we will probably never know. But Chris is saying that this is actually a lesson for many people who investigate this kind of uh, uh, phenomena. So what would actually be the lesson, Chris? Well, the thing is, it, it, it could have been a conflict. When you think about it, one of the things I left out, given a condensed version of this, is that the officer radioed other patrol cars in the distance, and they could all see the same thing. So in other words, those that were willing to look, those who were willing to view this directly seemed to be in agreement on the details as to what they saw and how it behaved, the silence, you know, the three sections of the craft, etc. However, perhaps the face of these people, and I don't know what brand of face it was, specifically, you're right, to point that out, um, perhaps just by the very nature of being a person of faith, that instantly, when they're confronted with this, is a conflict. A yeah. conflict with the faith. And, and therefore, it's seen as trauma, right? Because when you talk to the other people, and I've seen this before. In fact, I, I looked into a similar case in New Jersey. And you had two people that witnessed a sighting, an intense sighting, very specific, they stood beside each other and had the sighting together, right? When you talk, they agreed on the details. However, when you ask one person, they described it as transformative and of such a positive thing. And her friend described it as horrible, never wanted to experience it whatsoever, right? I found a third witness to this who was at the distance this is really cool. And they were just kind of, yeah, I seen it. Yeah, I'm not sure what it was, was weird. You know, they didn't seem to have an emotional engagement with it in any sense. However, I said, so would you like to have it happen again? And they're like, I don't know. And I said, would you like your children to experience it? No, they said. You know, then they could make up their mind. But the others had a strong opinion right from the start, one way or the other. But I, it almost seems to be that whatever was happening that night, whatever was pulling the strings here, that it was trying to influence them directly. And I think it's also what happens in these cases like Whitley Strieber has described, where perhaps um, an alien or some entity erects a, a screen memory on top of the real event to hide it or to call out or whatever. It could be for different purposes. Their purposes would be their own. You know, it reminds me in a slight way like that opening sequence in um, the famous movie, Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 
where you see the uh, gentleman in the desert leaning back that has the sunburn, you know, that speaks Spanish. And, you know, when they ask him uh, what he's seen and, you know, the translation comes out as he said, the sun came out last night. He said it sang to him, you know, it could be like that. And I think for those who are open, I think there tends to be a consistent message. It tends to be positive. And for those who aren't or in conflict, well, it can be a rough go. But everybody's different. It was like the sighting I had in Cape Sable, you know, back in uh, 2018, where there was, what, 60 other people there that day witnessing it. Some people reacted strongly. Some reacted with fear. Some looked at it and shrugged like, mm, don't know what that is, and walked away. You know, we're all individuals, you know, but uh, maybe sometimes it does try to change your mind, too. I don't know. You know, if there is, are aliens in that sense, if there are entities in whatever sense, be it extraterrestrial, extradimensional or extratemporal, their purposes are their own. I don't profess to know. Those are for greater minds than mine. I just like to find the data and drag the stuff into the life of day before it goes into the dustbin of history. That's my mission. Yeah, and we're so grateful to you for doing that work. Yeah, for sure. It's it's always fascinating what you uncover. Um, in other kind of UF, UFOlogy news there, I, I saw recently that they uh, finally announced that the alien bodies that had come from Peru uh, turned mm -hmm. out not be aliens mm. uh, turned out to be uh surprise, surprise. And, and dolls uh apparently mm. from uh that were kind of seized by customs in peru and then somehow went missing and ended up in the mexican congress and then the other uh kind of ufo thing that's popped up there is the uh the jellyfish ufo video um that's been kind of uh circulating around there i think uh, one of the the UFO documentary film guys has that uh, had, had that video sent to him. What uh, what's your take on that that uh, UFO? It, it looked a little bit different than our typical. Yeah, we have reported to us. I don't think I've seen that one, Elliot. I I'm kind of a digital hermit. I'm sorry you are. to say. You are. You're yeah, I, I am. I am. Whatsoever. I know. It's I, great. I'm the, I like knocking on doors and, and pressing the flesh and getting out there or sitting on the hill or, or going through mountains of paper and old file cabinets, you know, whatever. However, I've seen, you know, photos similar to that. And um, believe it or not, surprisingly, I, I think there was something to the work years ago of the somebody whose work has been largely forgotten, uh, Trevor Constable, a New Zealand, uh, he's deceased now, UFO researcher who wrote books about, he thought that some UFOs were living creatures themselves, you know, that may be extraterrestrial, but some of them may actually live 50 miles above the earth, you know, below uh, above where aircraft typically fly, but below where you could have a secure, uh, stable orbit, right? And avoid detection. And he often, and he thought only when there was a purpose or when they were injured or something, did they come down near the earth and interact or become visible even. And he took lots of photographs using traditional ultraviolet sensitive scientific film. And he, mm -hmm. had, he had some results. 
And some of that stuff did look like a jellyfish. And some of it um, had enough detail that it was interesting and seemed to have some validity and some not, I think. But I think that work had been overlooked. I can tell you that uh, there was a belief uh, amongst the uh, some of the DRB people, Defense Research Board here in Canada, and certainly some of the uh, naval brass that I spoke with that thought this was the case and that they had seen and that sea encountered these things that came down from 50 miles up that were in fact would be interpreted by most as a traditional UFO, but in fact were, were in themselves a living entity. That's interesting. And he yeah. was for the government too. He was U.S. Merchant Marine, I see. Yes, Trevor Constable. And um, yeah. And interestingly, you know, um, some of these spherical uh, or, or some of the UFOs, not the Tic Tac, but the ones that are reported. You notice the Tic Tac ones are always reported in the Pacific. In the Atlantic, you're more getting these cube within a sphere thing. Well, yeah, I was just uh, going to ask you about that. Yes. Remember that, uh, a long time ago, you, you drew out um, what the the uh, Sable Island UFO had looked like. And yeah, it Cape was, Sable. Uh, or Cape Sable, yeah, sorry. Yeah. The Cape Sable UFO sighting where it was like the the square with like the spirits. That's right. Yeah. And now I've since heard other UFO sightings yeah. where people have described that same shape. That's right. And um the more I've looked at that and doing, you know, some manipulation with the images and looking in, you know, using various filters and techniques, trying to get a better idea of what was going on inside. And uh, perhaps the best look I had, unfortunately, was with my own eyes through binoculars on the last reappearance. At that point, we couldn't use anything digital that refused to work. But when you looked in the corner, like, there were all kinds of things inside something almost looked like eggs down in the corner of it. And uh, something looked like a Mobius strip in the middle. It was very unusual, but it, it, it almost implied, uh, you know, some biological construction, you know what I mean? But uh, who knows, you know, we have a question here yeah. from Christian Bahumi. He is asking, Chris, in your opinion, uh, is it showing? It's showing. Yep, okay. it's up. It's in up. your opinion, since there is an obvious technological superiority of UFOs have, why would we be alerted, plainly hysterical, when these events happen instead of cherishing such contacts? Well, uh, <laughs> um, I, th I think that's a matter of individual response and, in you know, people's belief systems and how they respond to it. Like I say, I, I was lucky enough in 2018, I've, only twice in my life have I witnessed something I would definitely call a UFO without hesitation. And in that 2018 sighting on Cape Sable that uh, Elliot has mentioned, we had lots of other people there and you could see as I looked around all reactions and I was lucky enough to be with half a dozen people I knew and to watch their individual, very different reactions to the sighting and to the strangers around me was as, as interesting as the UFO itself. So I, I can't give you a single answer to that, but I can tell you that, uh, 
I think the circumstances make quite a difference. The unusual thing about this sighting I'm referencing on Cape Sable, it was in the daytime, like four o'clock in the afternoon, sunny, bright day, under ideal viewing conditions, you know. Um, how would most of those people have felt if they'd been alone on a dark road in bad weather at night? You know what I mean? I, I think sometimes the the setting, the conditions can make a big difference, right? Um, you even see that in a case like the Montreal case there that happened, you know, uh, you know, when the blackout occurred and that, you know, as it was over the Bonaventure Hotel. You know, people, uh, your circumstance, right? Sometimes a sighting is just a sighting and sometimes it can be threatening uh, just by its presence. I mean, if if you're driving down the highway in the rain at night and something appears in front of you unexpected, blocks it or stalls your car, how are you going to react? And they also use uh, ultrasonic, I believe, uh, uh, influence on people. And in many instances, people are just uh, extremely scared and fearful yeah. of such contact. Well, I, I mean, and I've also, I'm amazed that when you see people who, you know, you think uh, that their training and their professional background would prepare them for such a thing. And then they get quite emotional when they <laughs> describe it to you. You know, somebody who, you know, is a Marine or is, a, you know, special forces. And they had a sighting or close encounter and they start telling you and you see them emotionally distraught. It's very compelling. You know, I can tell you. Um, and yet, like I say, I've been present when people at a mass sighting and people looked up and yet others would shrug and walk away. Still, what I find interesting is that some people I almost think can't see UFOs, you know, and, and I mean that in every sense, including the people that walk around all the time with their hands in their pocket, looking at the ground because they never look up to people who do look up and see something. And it really doesn't register as anything. Hmm. And, and when you think about it, I, I always remember the story about, um, I forget what book I read, about how when the Spanish and the ships and the galleons first uh, approached the shores in South America, and people would ask, you know, like their, the shaman or, you know, who was in charge, like, what, what are those things coming at us? Because they'd never seen ships like that until they were told, like, it it had no reference. It had no meaning. They couldn't interpret it. You know, it would have been like a UFO, some unidentified floating object in this case. But, you know, having never seen a large sailing ship, only a canoe, you know. That is so interesting. I have learned so much today. Unbelievably. Yeah, a, lot, really a lot, a lot, because it, it just blows my mind how much information there was there. But especially you guys are Canadians, and it's always, always need, a wall of information. You know, you need two things for a UFO sighting or a UFO encounter of any kind. You need a UFO, and you need a witness. And the witness is as much a part of it in the experience, right? And I'll tell you That's something true. people never think about is how we have changed as a species, as a civilization. Nothing is going to happen in the U.S. that can't happen within a, a, a presidential term. 
you know, four years, it's got to happen in four years or it isn't going to happen in terms of budgeting, in terms of NASA. Some people will say, well, why aren't we out to Pluto yet with a manned mission? Why aren't we this? Why aren't we that? Because we're sure we are so sure short sighted now. And this has all happened uh, because we've changed. And how here, I'll just leave you with this. You think about it in the 1500s, 1600s. People with, with just simple hand tools built things like the great cathedrals in Europe. The people that started building those knew they weren't going to live to see them completed, but they built them, right? Mm -hmm. They solved great engineering problems along the way. The walls would start to collapse. They'd rebuild them and had to invent the flying buttress. To get the stone roof on, they'd fill the church with sand and then shovel it back out again. Incredible things. And they did it. It might take 200 years to build those cathedrals. We're not going to do that now. If somebody said, you can do this and pour this much money in and we can beat Alpha Centauri in 20 years and it'll be 20 years to come back, uh, you're not going to get that through Congress. You know what I mean? But those people back then started building these huge projects they would have been mega projects that they would never see the benefit or completion of we've yeah, changed we have changed that that is very true and it gives us something to certainly certainly think about for sure hmm. um thanks chris I, I know you're not on uh social media so if any of our uh if any of our uh listeners uh want to to get in touch with you or um ask any questions well, i know you I, do email yeah I, I i try to get back to them eventually um I'll, I'll, give is... you, I'll give you an email address to use i'll give you uh sure. shag harbor the canadian spelling one case lowercase one word s-h-a-g-h-a-r-b-o-u-r at yahoo.com at yahoo.com and uh you're your books, anyone that's interested in your books, I know Amazon yeah. has them. Is that the best, cheapest, fastest well, way to get them? Uh, um, yeah, Amazon would be the best. I mean, uh, you can get, uh, you know, I co-wrote uh, Impact to Contact with Graham Sims and Dark Object with Chris Stiles. Uh, with, me, with Don Ledger, pardon me. Boy, it's late <laughs> at night for me. Um, very much. Anyway, uh, yeah, my latest book about the Shelburne case, which is new and, and does encapsulate quite a bit of how I discovered it through uh, uh, Sweep Clear 5. That's available through Amazon in Halifax. I have deals here with bookstores. But the easiest way is to just simply get it Amazon.com. Sweep Clear 5, NATO's UFO encounter. My image just froze on my screen. I don't know if they can see that. But yeah, uh, such it an looks interesting like, picture. Looks, looks like you're ready to strangle me. Does <laughs> it? Looks like Homer coming after Bert. I don't feel that way now, but maybe by tomorrow morning when I get up to work here. That's the I thing know, it's you. late. It's late yeah. for you, you and I. No, but, look, it's uh, been a it's been a slice. I always enjoy doing these things, and uh, it's been great. I thank yeah. you for the interest out there, and and for your audience. You know, and the great questions they had. I wish I had answers. I, I all I can say is I'm never afraid to say I don't know. I I pride myself in trying to come up with a few answers and trying to verify them. But you know, I'm uh, no one should be afraid to say I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Well, and thank, thank you, you so for much, joining Chris. us today. It's been interesting. It was a pleasure to meet you. 
yes. Yana and uh, of course Elliot will be talking and meeting again, no doubt. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We'll see what's next. All right, I'm sounds sure great. I'll be stumbling into something by then, you know. I usually do, but uh, you usually do, yeah. No, we'll we'll be in touch. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, Science Normal. We were broadcasting live on the United Public Radio Network, Normal Radio Network, one hundred five point three and one hundred seven point seven FM uh, in New Orleans, and also on Roku TV. Um, thank you very much, guys, and uh, we'll see you next episode. Join us next week because we will have a steady Estes, the host of Truth or Demons podcast. She interviews people who had direct connections and experiences with the Warrens and their organization to shed some light mm. on what it was like in the field alongside those incredible people, Ed and Lorraine. Yeah, that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. All right, See guys. See you next week. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.